Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. In recent episodes of this podcast, we've explored what the social media platforms are doing to mitigate mis- and disinformation related to elections. With the U.S. midterms approaching, and with the memory of January 6th still fresh, how the platforms implement their policies, resource the teams responsible for monitoring false claims, and work with civil society groups on the ground is crucial. In effect, local and state government officials, academic researchers, and nonprofit groups are volunteering their time to help with a massive cleanup effort that is only so effective as still the vast majority of claims that run counter to platform policies go unchecked. But that's not just a problem in the United States. In fact, it is well understood that for all the shortcomings of the tech platform's approach to elections in this country, it's much worse abroad, where often language and cultural barriers combine with fewer political and business incentives for firms such as Meta, Twitter, YouTube, and TikTok to properly resource elections. A document revealed by Twitter whistleblower Peter Zatko, for instance, observed that the company, quote, lacks the organizational capacity in terms of staffing, functions, language, and cultural nuance to be able to operate in a global context. It noted the frustration of its team in Brazil, who unsuccessfully sought more attention during that country's last election cycle. Now, just weeks before a general election that will decide Brazil's next president, there are signs that disinformation is rife on all the platforms, with many observers concerned about the potential for violence. To learn more, I spoke to two experts involved in efforts to identify and mitigate disinformation in Brazil. So my name is Flora Rebelarduini. I am a campaigns director at the international organization called Some of Us, which is focused on corporate accountability. Uh, hello, I'm João Branche. I coordinate a project called Desinformante, which tries to gather uh, reliable information on disinformation and talking about Brazil. I'm so pleased that the two of you can join me today and uh, help tech policy press listeners understand the situation in Brazil and understand uh, what you're up against uh, in what is now just weeks until the general election there. But first, perhaps we can start there with a bit of what is the situation. I understand that the, the polls, while they're not necessarily tight between the two top contenders here, they are tightening up. And, you know, of course, there's a a major problem yet with with election disinformation. Would one of you be willing to kind of just give a sort of general sense of of the situation at the moment? So we are uh, Brazilian elections. We run on October second, the first round, and October thirtieth, uh, the second round. Uh, it's a very peculiar election because we have Bolsonaro, who is in uh, the incumbent, running against Lula, the former president that was the most popular uh, president that left government with 88% of approval, uh, but then was put in jail. And then the, the cases, 22 cases were dismissed. So it's a very, uh, everyone knows quite well the candidates. And so that creates, uh, I would say, a different situation than previous elections where this information had more space to flourish. But still, and yet we see uh, very serious cases of disinformation running in, on this election. And it's definitely a concern. If I may add just what Juan just said, I think precisely because we know the candidates very well and we know that uh, elections in Brazil 
since the last 2018 election, presidential election, we've seen this polarization. And so polarization is like a, um, a great situation for disinformation, misinformation, hate attacks. So you can see this offline kind of polarization in Brazilian society surely being um, reflected in the online space as well. So you're seeing these two figures and its supporters also you know, reflecting this kind of content um, online. Both of your organizations have just released reports kind of on the problem of mis- and disinformation uh, in this in this election cycle in Brazil. Um, I'd love, if you will, to just sort of have you uh, maybe explain some of your top line findings, the way you characterize the problem after your study of it. So great. So to start with the some of us research, um, we were really trying to understand how Facebook in particular, Facebook, Instagram, so the meta products, which are incredibly popular in Brazil. Brazil is one of their main markets uh, worldwide. WhatsApp, for example, Brazil is the second market of WhatsApp, only after India. So we were interested to see how meta was putting in place its policies ahead of the elections in Brazil. Um, And September 7 was our uh, focus to research because September 7 in Brazil, it's a national uh, holiday. It's the Independence Day. And since Bolsonaro came to power, it became a political date, right? It used to be just a holiday, a national holiday, uh, not a political holiday. But since then, uh, since he came into power, it became a far right and right holiday in the country. And uh, we were interested to see how this politicization, I'm sorry, that's the how you say it, was being reflected uh, online and was being reflected on Facebook. And so we focused one week of research and uh, what we found was basically we divided in three pillars. So the first pillar was electoral campaign ahead of its time. So it was actually illegal uh, electoral campaigns. In Brazil, you were only allowed to run electoral campaigns after August 16th. And we assessed several ads, so impersonated paid ads from uh, the far-right candidates uh, in on Facebook. So the second pillar were ads that were borderline uh not borderline, they were straightforward anti-democratic uh, ads. So they were pulling, you know, speeches from Bolsonaro, just calling people to go to the streets on September 7. And the reason why they're so concerning is because they're really calling people to go fight for their lives on, August, on September 7th, which is a very similar narrative that we saw when Trump was calling, you know, U.S. citizens to go to Capitol Hill on January the 6th. And the third pillar was what we found um, on encrypted platforms, so Telegram and WhatsApp. And again, there we found uh, even more aggressive rhetorics, obviously, because there is no moderations in these platforms, um, WhatsApp and Telegram. The speech is way more violent and way more aggressive. Obviously, people learn how to navigate the platform's policies. So they know that if they use specific words, it will be easier for the AI to catch and to block um, certain ads or certain posts. There is not such a concern on WhatsApp. And so... You could see these three uh, kind of a streams of content being spread on these platforms. And I think it says a lot. One of the findings is that how much Lerna has learned since September, uh, January the 6th in the DC. And our conclusion is that it learned pretty much nothing. So why we say this is I know it might sound very 
you know, just headlining and just, you know, flashy kind of uh, affirmation. But the real reason is we have no idea what Meta is doing ahead of the Brazilian elections. If you look at their website, the policies that they put in place and what they say they put in place ahead of the Brazilian elections are extremely generic. And uh, you can see that they use global numbers. They don't say how many, for example, how many Brazilian Portuguese moderators there are working ahead of the Brazilian elections. All of these things show that, anyways, they're putting, again, um, the profits before um, uh, elections, um, integrity and um, democracy. So for us, our biggest concern, and which is aligned with you know, several other organizations that João and Desinformante are also part, is that, again, there is absolutely no transparency from uh, Meta about exactly how they're putting in place policies and actions that are indeed tailored to the Brazilian context and tailored to uh, the elections in one specific country. Now, Facebook uh, said in a statement that's in the press, of course, that it has launched tools that promote reliable information and label election-related posts, that it's established a direct channel for the Superior Electoral Court to send potentially harmful content for review, and that it is closely collaborating with Brazilian authorities and researchers. Joao, you you are a representative of a coalition of uh, researchers and groups, perhaps in Speaking to some of the findings in your recent report, I'd ask you to address that. Do you regard uh, Meta or the other social media platforms as effectively working with civil society in Brazil? Well, I think the big issue is uh, they definitely are not doing enough. Like when they say, when they mention these kind of uh, measures that they adopt, uh, they are really adopting that. And it's fine. And I think it helps them uninformed uh, uh, citizens to understand where they can vote uh, or whatever that's useful. Yes, definitely it is. But we're talking about a, a really big problem that it's not being addressed. If you look, uh, and I will separate into three uh, main concerns. One is we looked at the policy. Uh, we look at the policy of all the companies, the different uh, platforms here in Brazil. And I can say that uh, none of them is really enough to combat disinformation, considering not only the disinformation against the election or the electoral system, which has been a big issue here, but also the disinformation against or from one candidate to the other, which is one of the big issues in any uh, of the election. So that's one problem. It's the policy. Uh, but of course, they are different. If you take, for instance, Twitter, I would say that it's probably the strongest uh, policy that we have for protecting the electoral integrity itself, although they don't uh, really do any kind of assessment on disinformation from one candidate to the other. Uh, if you take Meta policy, uh, that's the only company that doesn't consider disinformation, for instance, the uh, allegation of fraud uh, without any kind of evidence or, or uh, elements. And so if you can allege that elections are being frauded and you're not being considered uh, someone that is promoting this information. And that's only matter that has adopted this uh, loose uh, perspective. And so there's different perspectives on policy. The second thing is, uh, I would say, the enforcement. And so we had Global Witness doing an experiment showing that uh, Meta hasn't been enforced their own policy to protect ads, for instance, against uh, basic information in the election, and that created a reaction. Meta did change the, the, their policy to 
uh, not accept ads that go against the legitimacy or that contest the legitimacy of the Brazilian elections. But if you see how it's going in place, it probably hasn't changed anything. There are some studies to be uh, to be published in the next weeks. And the third thing is related to the examples, to the way they, they really apply their policy. YouTube, for instance, says that any uh, conspiration theory that can lead to, to violence or anything, it's forbidden in, in the platform. And the example is a QAnon issue that for us has nothing to do with our reality. And we do have conspiration theories that are uh, serious and that can affect violence in real place. So that's, I would say, the big picture. The, what we think that it's really could be done is to protect the platforms against the idea that they will be the place to arrange civil unrests and against democratic order in Brazil. I would say that that's our main concern like 20 days before the election, which is uh, if you're offering a place that people can organize and really go promote an upheaval against the demo democracy in our country, it's a big problem. And apart from Twitter, all the platforms don't have policy uh, that really protect this to happen. So that prevent this to happen. I do want to just uh, pause on this and, and get both of your perspectives. I mean, clearly, coming from the United States, we, we have this tendency to, of course, you know, be very uh, US-centric in our point of view. And I'm sure I'm not in any way uh, immune to that. Of course, I've spent a lot of time talking about and, and researching and writing about January 6th in the United States and the role of social media in that phenomenon. How concerned are you at the moment that this election cycle may result in violence? I mean, when I look at your reports, many of the images, the memes, the presence of weapons, direct incitements to violence uh, look very familiar to me as someone who has looked at the 2020 cycle very closely here. Just connecting a dot before just in what, what Ruan was saying around the platform's policies. Meta uh, has a specific policy around electro ads, right? And uh, uh, social topics. And when we did a research, when we ran a research, the ads, the most problematic ones, we selected from a sample of 3,000. Then we focused on 16 that were specific around elections and social topics. And Meta's policy says that they will remove any content that can take to that can lead to offline violence. And all of these ads that we saw, those 16, just 16, got 650,000 impressions. And those were paid ads. So they were one monetizing on uh, violent uh, speech. And second of all, they were violating their own policies, as Juan was mentioning before. So you're seeing that they were, they have the policy, they haven't actually deployed and enforced the policy. And to answer your specific question around if there is concern about the violence in Brazil, surely everyone is concerned that this is a possibility. And you see authorities in Brazil putting in place safety measures that have never been put in place before in Brazilian history. Specifically, if we look at September 7, which was a very key moment for our democracy, there has been security and safety measures, um, historic ones, right? Like there was an actual fear that some what they call lone wolves will actually go and invade um, beauties and institutions. But I don't think it ends at the election. I think as we we have to learn of what happened in January the 6th, the rhetoric and the speech will go right way after um, the election results. And I think it's important that we are seeing candidates change their discourse, <laughs> focusing on what is most 
uh, valuable to gather more supporters and get get more votes. So we saw Bolsonaro having a very, you know, violent speech for years. Surely his campaign understood if he, he continued with such uh, violent discourse of like uh, military coup, violence on the streets, will probably not gather more votes. So you could see a little bit of like a mild, a bit more mild uh, rhetoric um, ahead of this September 7th. He did some pretty um, concerning uh, statements in the manifestations on September 7th. So I'm just saying this because we will see a fluctuation of the, the candidates' uh, discourse, specifically the Farad, specifically Bolsonaro. It's yet to see how far he will keep going with the attacks um, on, uh, against institutional uh, authorities in Brazil. And of course, depending on the results, then we'll have again to be really careful of where that can take um, supporters. I would say, I would add to that, that the results here are really quick in showing the results. So in this first round, results will be clear in the night of the election because it's an electronic voting system. And if Lula wins, probably Bolsonaro's supporters will go to the streets and try like to trigger civil unrest against the, the election result. Uh, if it's on the second round, it may happen as well. And so it's kind of unpredictable what can happen and it will happen quite fast it will be a spark that is put on the streets it's sent to the streets and there are lots of military and paramilitary groups with guns and weapons waiting for uh, something like this to happen or for them to be provoked to go to the streets and start something i may it sounds like really bizarre or or pessimistic but I, I, it's it's sad i mean it's clearly uh, sad and they're being outspoken about that. So uh, we definitely, if Lula wins, we can wait for the results to be contested by the Bolsonaro supporters uh, because they actually won't accept the, the election result. And that's the, the moment that the platform will have to change immediately the way to, to deal with that, or they have to be prepared to understand how can you uh, really not feed an anti-democratic movement that will probably happen uh, and will be in place. Even in this intense moment, I'm interested in whether, Juan, especially you, if you can, uh, thinking about the coalition, if you can kind of look at the situation from a historical perspective, is this the way that it is now? Is this the way elections in Brazil will will be uh, in the social media age? Will this type of coalition always be necessary? This type of research, uh, Flora, that you're doing always be necessary? Can we imagine getting to a better place? Or do you suspect that the types of, I suppose, civil society emergency response that you're engaged in now will have to follow every cycle? Well, unfortunately, I think we'll have to follow every cycle. And that's related to the way the platforms uh, really changed the public debate and the informational environment in the last 10 years. Uh, that's related to the uh, segmentation, the fragmentation, the uh, promotion of extremist uh, discourses. And it's basically related to the business model. So it is a structural mo uh, uh, debate. I wouldn't like, of course... Being in a structural debate doesn't mean that you have only to discuss structural uh, responses to that, because otherwise you keep doing the only the, the big debates on regulation or whatever. But we'll have to do both at the same time. And so we have to discuss more st structural responses and we have to act upon 
the immediate effects that it has, not only on, on elections, but I would say on uh, social rights as well. If, if you take the racial justice movement, uh, if you take the environmental issues related in Brazil, the climate uh, crisis that we're living, everything is being affected by uh, this informational environment. Let me ask another kind of question, I guess, related to this uh, bigger picture, which is that, you know, we've seen the types of coalitions um, that you're working with come together in other countries, of course. There have been recent ones around the French election. Uh, there was a, a, you know, a group that I've had on to this podcast in the past. Of course, there was the Election Integrity Partnership uh, in the United States. And on some level, these groups have themselves become part of the narrative, become part of the kind of conspiracy narrative among some populist groups on the right um, who seek to delegitimize election outcomes. I guess in the States, we've seen even the discourse around the problem of mis- and disinformation become politicized, um, even though the problem is very much an asymmetric one. How do you contend with that, both of you in your organizations? How do you both recognize the reality of what's happening and also maintain a nonpartisan perspective? Some of us, it's not based in Brazil. So we have an institutional organization with legal uh, responsibility of being completely nonpartisan in the Brazilian election specifically. So for the Brazilian research, for the Brazilian efforts that we are having ahead of this election, it's completely nonpartisan. We just look at what we're, we look at the facts and we look at the data. So for this research, for example, we didn't just focus on when we were doing the research on Facebook ads library, we weren't necessarily looking at, well, let's see what the far right is saying or what the left is saying. We use neutral terms. We use left, more lefty uh, kind of uh, hashtags or far right uh, common hashtags. And it's a fact that the far right pushes this narrative more and on social media. It's just a fact. If we look at the body of research that, that there are not just some of us, but other great organizations out there, Throughout the years, you see the far right pushing this narrative uh, way more than other uh, political spectrums. And so just to say, we will always assess if there is problems and there is disinformation or misinformation being pushed, no matter by what uh, candidate or what political spectrum, this has to be called out. So some of us, it's practically fully funded by uh, members. Uh, and so just regular people, just regular citizens. So it's almost as if it's our... It's in our DNA. It's our responsibility to serve and people. And so we have people that support different candidates and very varied and across the world because it's a global organization. And so I guess the way we will make sure that we are always looking at it in a more um, from a macro perspective is just seeing what the data is offering us, which is a problem as Juan and you just knows that we have no transparency from those platforms. And so finding the data and finding, you know, um, conducting this kind of research is really hard and it's getting increasingly hard. If you look, if you try to look at specifically at Meta, if you specifically Instagram and Facebook, so Meta products, there is one specific tool that is called Crown Tangle, which is brilliant. It's one of the best tools you can have as a researcher to look at, to have a glimpse, but a better glimpse of what's actually happening in those platforms. And they're increasingly cutting off the uh, access to this tool. First of all, Meta bought the tool, <laughs> right? So there is already a concern there. They bought the tool and now they are the gatekeeper of who has access to this tool. And so 
for the biggest efforts that we do in researchers in Brazil or elsewhere is that we don't have one, the lack of transparency from these platforms. Uh, we've been saying this over and over again. Um, second, the biggest issue is that because they're not transparent, they don't say, for example, um, how much of research they're putting in specific languages. They always focus on English. And we know the biggest researchers are put it in English. And the third is the lack of lack of access. And so I guess one of the policies and one of the, you know, focus of our organization is legislation to make sure that we have strong bodies of enforcement and regulation across big tech, big tech industry. We are seeing, we really campaign a lot um, in Europe for the passing of the Digital Services Act. So the DSA, it's a landmark legislation, right? So we want to make sure as much as possible that the good bits of this legislation, which is, there are many, are also uh, passed through uh, across the world and also making sure that the U.S., which is their homeland, does pass strong legislations that will keep these platforms on their toes. Can I add something on that? I think Brazil has something that goes over the top of the problems that the, the Global North already knows, which is uh, WhatsApp and Telegram being used as viral and really mass communication tools. That's Brazil, that's India, that's Nigeria, that's part of the Southeast Asian. It's like populous uh, uh, countries that for some, I would say, anthropological reasons uh, and cultural reasons use a lot the groups uh, systems and the viral perspectives that they, the features that these uh, tools offer. And that creates a huge part of the public debate to be buried, to be under earth, to be uh, really not seen by the public. So not you can't respond to anything that is happening there. You can't actually understand, you can see what's happening. And WhatsApp is the Brazilian most popular tool of information today. So that creates a really uh, a concern here. And of course they, they adopted some friction measures, something to, to uh, kind of prevent viralization, but they are really important and things go viral and things go without any kind of accountability and any kind of liability, uh, be the legal or moral, because part of the, the issue would be better if we had moral accountability or moral liability for what you say. But if you don't, if you're not subject to that, if the anonymity is taken as, as a rule, as a general rule and not as an exception that creates a big problem for the public debate. Perhaps just in closing, I want to kind of come back to uh, you know, regulatory reforms you'd like to see in Brazil specifically. But Juan, could I just push you on this question of with regard to the function of these coalitions, you know, it was as a as a model that's evolving now around the world in democracies, how do you keep them from becoming kind of part of the, the broader debate about the legitimacy of the information ecosystem? How do they avoid becoming, or is it just sort of, I guess, par for the course that, of course, anyone protecting democratic debate and democratic institutions would, would necessarily be pulled into the orbit I of think, conspiracy theories? I think part of that you really can't avoid. It's something that will happen. And of course, the ones that are being at the forefront of these debates will be attacked, will be uh, part of uh, conspiration theories and etc. But the second thing, I, I would say that in, in our view, 
the the main strategy was to define the common the document as our common place like we are not a fixed coalition there are fixed coalitions that deal with digital rights for instance in in the country these coalitions are signing this document so uh, the the coalition on digital rights the coalition on black uh, movements the coalition on indigenous movements uh coalitions of ngos they are all signing this document and so uh they are giving support to a specific approach to this debate and that's our agreement it's a kind of document that it's itself our agreement and it at least it covers uh the fact that no one is speaking uh, different things for uh, in on behalf of others which what is posed and defined is on the document and so we are really we were careful on the document to really protect from uh, more biased perspectives. We all have our political uh, views, our political perspectives, and that's fine. And I think uh, we're seeing, as Flora said, that the extreme right is using more disinformation to uh, go against democracy. And it's part, part of that. It's because there is a kind of affinity between the affordances of these this tools and the uh, a strategy for uh, populist right uh, leaders to to act upon them. So once they def- they found this out, they really started using that. And that's fine if the platforms offer you uh, something like this, they, are, they will use it. There is no way not to use it. And so I think one thing is to recognize that, that it's a different perspective, but the other thing is to avoid that this kind of coalitions or, or be there uh, uh, more long-term or short-term are taken for specific uh, proposals. So I think that's, and so far, I think we're doing that. We, we achieved that. So I'll put this last question to you both. And, and really it's a question about uh, the regulatory environment in Brazil and uh, perhaps after this election, um, what types of reforms you can imagine pursuing that might address this issue going forward. I mean, you've, uh, Flora, you've spoken about uh, the Digital Services Act you, in some of its measures, I'm sure you'd like to see uh, replicated. Uh, and you've, of course, mentioned the uh, importance of the United States getting its act together with, with regard to regulating these companies. Uh, unfortunately, I don't necessarily see that happening in the near term. Um, what do you hope will happen there? It's a complex issue. It's, uh, it's, it's almost as if when I, when I talk about regulation on, on big tech and on social media, I usually do a parallel with environmental legislations or conventions, right? Because they are always evolving and they can't be just so fixed and so steady in the present that it will freeze in action from legislators about new issues that might come up with the technology. So it has to be bodies of legislations that are flexible enough to respond, promptly respond to the developments of the technology, but also strong enough that are, you know, doable and practical. So it is, it is complicated. It's a hard, it's a hard uh, kind of legislation and it's new. We've never done this before uh, to regulate this kind of industries that are so rapidly evolving and has so much power, right? Like they're huge monopolies. Meta is a huge monopoly, Google, Apple, so on and so forth. So just thought it would be helpful to give this context a little bit. What I think the, it's nicknamed as the fake news bill in Brazil. And because it started from right after the presidential elections, right, where we, in 2018, where we saw the infodemic on disinformation on social media. And so it, it, it has this spirit of to fight off disinformation. 
there are several problematics with this bill currently, as it is right now. And one of them is, for example, parliamentary immunity. If you spread this information and if you use public money to use, you know, uh, to post this uh, misinformation online. Um, so that has to go. But other elements that I really think that YSA could and should have done better, but are there. <laughs> there is the there is the intention and there is the DNA on DSA that I think would be great to see in legislations across the road. Specifically, I think the profiling. So when we're talking about surveillance advertising, and we mentioned this briefly before, is their business model, right? Like these platforms, they leave from profiling. So they are able to collect an unprecedented detail data and information from you, gather this information and then sell back to you. So you get in this loop, endless loop on, on social media that it goes way beyond social media, right? It goes on our online imprint. So surely legislation and regulations around profiling of how much data these platforms are allowed to take um, from, uh, from users. Also, how this data is utilized we are seeing mismanagement of personal data on a daily basis, on different levels, right? From misusing our data, for example, WhatsApp tried to pass a policy last year <laughs> across the world where if you had to accept, in the global south specifically, you had to accept that your data would be taken from you and sell it to Facebook or we would have to leave the platform. So it was a false choice between you know, Brazilians, nine out of 10 of you use this platform. If you don't accept our abusive terms, you're kicked off of the platform. So it was just a false choice, for example. So this kind of, of uh, data usage is, has, has to be addressed. Surely, I hope that more access to researchers and academics and, you know, independent parties to assess how the platform is deploying and in implementing its policy, how is actually responding to ongoing legislations across you know, the country specifically, and also making sure that they give access, enough access, so that researchers can really have concrete data, concrete assessment of what's, being, what's working, what's not working, and what needs to be done. Um, so giving this access to independent researchers, it's, I really believe it's crucial. So auditors, basically. And also, again, so we don't get too late in the debate, is AI. We have to look at AI as like we're late. Um, it's overdue. So AI is something that it's it's popping across the road. We're seeing the EU passing an AI legislation. We're seeing Brazil already addressing this uh, this topic. So surely it's something that we need to pass um, as soon as possible, but also responsibly. You know, yes, and all of those tech reforms, but in the face of political elites that espouse lies, do you reckon that those types of reforms will uh, ever get us close to some reasonable uh, solution to these problems? Yeah, I think at least in Latin America, this is very, very clear. And that affects, for instance, uh, why Meta does protect the political discourse, uh, knowing that uh, politicians are the most, the biggest spreaders of disinformation. Uh, I know and I, I assume and I, I have some empathy with the, the argument that uh, they are local leaders. They were elected, and they have their discourse uh, discussed, like and and scrutinized. I think that's valid for only for the big leaders. And even though you you assume something like this, you have to understand that politicians, especially in Latin America, are the biggest spreaders of disinformation. Uh, we had in Brazil a parliamentary inquiry committee, 
on pandemic, on the pandemic, and it has a 200 chapter, 200 page chapter uh, showing how this information worked. I would say the conclusion is quite clear that the politicians were the key diffusers, how do you say that, the spreaders of this information, right? I mean, so that's one issue that's related to something that the, the platforms could do themselves. The second thing for me is on regulation, the big thing. I would say that in the last 10 years, we really let aside all the, the modern values that use it to organize our, if I'm sorry, our informational, informational environment since the post-war until 2010. So we had 60 years where the professional journalism was the organizer of the public sphere, if we can say like this, an organizer of the democratic regulation systems in Europe, for instance. So you had all the discussion on pluralism, on diversity, and reliability of information was not a big issue because professional journalism would protect and actually did protect that uh, from being a big problem. So once you, you had the social platforms to assuming this new role, it really changes the picture. And we are in a kind of digital state of nature, uh, a Hobbesian state of nature in a digital world, because you, you really let aside all the social contract that you had about the, the public sphere, and you just say, go, go and do your stuff. And your worst psychological perspectives will lead the way we organize information. So if our regulation doesn't go in, at some point to this core issue, it won't sort out anything. And so for me, it's very difficult, of course, to say that because it goes on, on to the, the business model of the, the companies and you can't just put the, the toothpaste back to the tube. But at some point, you have to do that. And I think UK is doing is trying to do that on the online safety bill. I think Europe, with this risk assessment that is stated on the and provided by the DSA, kind of uh, experiment that. And I would say that at, we have to go in some way for this direction. Each election cycle in these democracies seems like a live experiment. And I wish you the best as the experiment plays out in your country. And I hope that perhaps we'll be able to discuss uh, how all the variables fit together after the fact and perhaps arrive at a better place in the near term. So I wish you both the best. Thank you. Thank you very much, Justin, for the opportunity. And I hope you're right. I, I hope we have peace in this and monotony, that's what we expect <laughs> as the best scenario. Yes, thank you very much, Justin. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guests, Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.